You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Think about it. We have an accidental president today. Nobody expected this. A wave of anxiety ripples across the globe because people are concerned that this guy, this is the guy that has the chops to do the job. There's a sudden turn events in terms of our relationship with Moscow. Russia suddenly is looming as a dangerous threat to everything here in America, our very way of life. Then there's the potential for atomic warfare in the Far East. Now you have two presidents, Trump and Truman, who are called on very, very early in their administrations to make world shattering decisions. And everybody, all eyes are on the White House. That's A.J. Bain, the author of The Accidental President. Real excited to have him on the program. We're going to talk all about Truman and the presidency that even he was surprised to undertake and didn't want. And we're going to talk about President Truman's legacy, what it's like to write a history book. And we're going to get into modern politics and the Trump presidency, too. Couple of notes. The Premium Podcast. Consider it if you have not. If you like this program, one of the biggest requests that I get is please do more content. But on the premium podcast, you get an extra podcast. There's at least 30 bonus items that are unavailable to subscribers of the podcast. Plus, we replay older episodes. Right now on the premium podcast, I answer 20 questions from listeners. Now, I did that back in 2010, and I replayed that on the Premium Podcast, and now I have my 2017 20 questions. It was exhausting, but we got through a lot of good stuff. The um, regular subscribers to My History Politics are going to get that episode, but not until November. You can have it now at the Premium Podcast. Now, there's lots of other content, bonus episodes there, too. It's just $2 a month, and if you want to support the program more, there's other memberships, and you get cool stuff with it. You just go to www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpoliticspremium.com. Second note, we're going to have Mike Duncan on the podcast on the 24th. Mike Duncan is the author of The Storm Before the Storm, and uh, you know him as the podcaster of Revolutions and the History of Rome. He's coming on My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. Real excited about that. Now, here's the interview. A.J. Baim is the New York Times bestselling author of The Arsenal of Democracy, FDR, Detroit, and an epic quest to arm an America at war. And Go Like Hell, Ford, Ferrari, and their battle for speed and glory at Le Mans. Baim is a longtime regular contributor to the Wall Street Journal, and his articles have also appeared in the New York Times, Popular Science, and Men's Journal. He joins me today to discuss The Accidental President, his book on Harry S. Truman and the four months that changed the world. AJ, thanks for joining us on My History Could Beat Up Your Politics today. I'm so thrilled to be here. Thank you. I uh, really enjoyed your book, which is about the unplanned presidency of uh, Truman. You know, outside of 
say, Gerald Ford in recent memory and Chester Arthur or Calvin Coolidge a little bit in the past, we're not used to presidents who didn't really seek out the office. No, it's extraordinary. And, and Truman, in, in particular, his story is, is extraordinary. Just the whole idea that, you know, he was never meant to be on the 44 ticket. He did not want to be the vice president. He argued with all of his friends that he didn't want to be the pre vice president. And the real reason why was because he knew at the time in 1944 that FDR was ill. And so whoever was going to be the, the VP on the 44 ticket was likely to become the president of the United States. It's something Harry Truman was vocal that he never wanted. It's something that his wife was very vocal in the home that she didn't want. Mm -hmm. Yet uh, it happened. Although he, he was certainly aware of uh, FDR's condition, too, some of the meetings that he has with FDR, let's say, during the general election campaign, perhaps reveal even more that this guy's health is in trouble. It's true. After, after Truman um, becomes the candidate, after Chicago, the, the, the convention in 44, Truman goes to the White House, and it's one of only two official meetings that these two people had. They, during the time that Truman was vice president, 82 days, he had almost no contact with FDR. He had no idea what was going on mm -hmm. or very little sense of, of what was happening in terms of foreign relations. But uh, he goes to meet the president. He, they sit down under this uh, tree that had been planted by Andrew Jackson on the grounds of the White House. They have sardines on toast and some tea, and Truman is stunned when he sees FDR pick up a teapot and try to pour a cup of tea. The president's hands are shaking so much he can't get the tea into the cup. And Truman walks away. He goes back to the to, to his office. He's got his buddy Harry Vaughn there. And he tells him, he says, the president's falling apart. Mentally, FDR was all there, but physically he was falling apart. It was very clear that he was not a healthy man. Your book gets a little bit into the background of Truman. One of the things that fascinated me, I was reminded that... You know, Truman, even at age 30, we're talking about a guy who's a farmer. He barely has enough money for a car so that it can go court his uh, future wife. Not many prospects. I mean, geez, you know, Bill Clinton was governor of Arkansas by that age. It's just a very different type of political career that 30 years later is going to bring him to the presidency. The, the best part about writing this book, let's face it, when you're writing a book like this, you spend months and months and months of time by yourself. It's really an amazingly stressful experience. But in this case, it was so much fun to write about Truman because you're talking about the biggest underdog who had ever stepped foot in the Oval Office. It's a story about an underdog. Now, you think about Truman, you know, at, he was in his 30s and he was a haberdasher. He had been a farmer. Um there's this picture in the book of him and his haberdashery, and you can't believe that just, you know, 20 years later, that person, that guy standing there behind the counter selling ties to rich people in Kansas City and, you know, selling underwear is going to become the most powerful man in the history of the world. That's a that's an amusing, you know, not amusing, um, an extraordinary character to write about, because really great stories are about ordinary people who find themselves in extraordinary circumstances. What could be more extraordinary about this? A guy who had never been mayor of a city who had never been governor of state, becomes the most powerful man in the world at this critical moment in world history by accident. Talk about that moment a little bit. What's Harry S. Truman's first day like? Well, I spent a lot of time, actually I spent the first 38 pages of the book um, just on, August, on April 12th, 1945, on one day. That's the day that Roosevelt dies. Um, then uh, I spend quite a bit of time on Truman's first full day in office. And it's amazing. I mean, 
he has to come in and walk into the Oval Office. Nobody in, you know, the whole staff, they're not used to getting up before nine o'clock in the morning because FDR didn't. And he strolls in, you know, walking army pace at 830 and he walks into the Oval Office and literally sits down at this desk. And John, the press secretary, Jonathan Daniels, is sitting there. And he later wrote that, it, you know, Truman, it looked like he was testing out the chair and that it, that it was Roosevelt's room. Daniels wrote that even the sun coming through the window touching Truman's glasses seemed to belong to FDR. It was FDR's world. So here comes Truman. Everybody's stunned. And he's immediately moved into these really important meetings. He meets with uh, James Burns, who becomes secretary of state. James Burns, on the first day of Truman's presidency, starts talking about this secret weapon that we're building, that the United States is building. Truman really has very, very little information of the war's biggest secret. Um, even on the first day of his president, he doesn't know about the atomic bomb. He knows only the barest details. So that's crazy, and that, that's the story that gets told to history. Uh, he knows there's a vague, a vague little secret project when he's the the senator on that uh, on the on the committee uh, watching the war expenditures across the country. There's a vague little inkling that some secret project, like it's just basically a do not touch. That's right. So um, Truman, he really comes to prominence for the first time. He's a very obscure senator. Uh, he launches the Truman Committee during World War II, which is the Committee to Investigate National Defense. So during the war, Truman is going around, he and his committee, figuring out how to make, you know, who the profiteers are, where the bottlenecks are to get the tools of war to the troops overseas. So during this time, he, one of his operatives, Fred Canfield, is up in the Pacific Northwest and he finds out about this weird place, which turns out to be the first plutonium reactor in the history of the world in Hanford, Washington. And the Secretary of War calls Truman on the phone and says, you're not allowed to investigate that. I found the transcript of this conversation in the Rare Manuscripts Division at Yale University. I'll never forget that day picking up that. It was actually a microphone. And I'm like, wow. And I quoted at length in the book. And I'm not that, you know, I can't say I'm the first to quote that conversation, but it was it's extraordinary. So the Secretary of War tells Senator Truman, no, you're not allowed to investigate this. And Truman says, OK, and he doesn't. He didn't realize that a couple of years later he's going to be the president of the United States. And uh, he's in the middle of a war. Um, and I think there's probably two ways to look at that. You know, it is 1944. They, you know, while he's being picked uh, as the nominee, that's the first attempt on Hitler's life by his own troops. We are starting to resolve World War II, at least on the German front. On the other hand, he's starting his first day in the middle of the country's, you know, arguably largest war, certainly largest global war. And uh, I guess there's two ways to look at that. One is, well, you know, he started, even though it is a tough job, there's a lot of generals in place. You have uh, Eisenhower and MacArthur in place. Their generals taking care of a lot of decisions. And... And also, at least one of the enemies is very much on the ropes. The other way, I suppose, to look at it is, um, wow, uh, this guy really, really came into a job. And as somebody who had been a haberdasher, kind of a quiet senator, really did a great job. I wish you would talk about that a bit. Two things I, I want to say to answer that question. One is on Truman's first day as president, it's April 13th, 1945. He meets with his top uh, military commanders, or some of them, who were in Washington, namely George C. Marshall, and the Secretary of War and the Secretary of uh, the Navy, James Forstall. And they come into his office on Truman's first day, and they tell him, and uh, hold on, I'm looking it up, the exact numbers, I got it right here. 
they say, okay, six more months. They think it's going to take six more months to defeat Germany. And they think it's going to take 18 more months to defeat Japan. And the, and the inference is they, they probably knew that they were going to win the war. There was going to be a lot of carnage before that war was won. 18 more months is what they believed. So there was a lot of war left to fight. Now, the other way I want to answer your question is this. I think you're right. I think it's correct to say that the war was moving along. The generals were in place. The battle plans were in place. And uh, when Truman became president, what really was not in place was foreign relations. How are we going to map out the history of the world? What was our relationship going to be with Russia? In the first chapter of the book, I outline during FDR's uh, last day, right up to the day, the moment he died. He was conversing by cable with Joseph Stalin in the Kremlin, and the relationship between the USSR and the USA was falling apart drastic, dangerous ways. Truman had no idea that's what he walked into. So, yes, the war was moving along. Our relationship with Russia, our relationship with, the, with Great Britain, with France, the very complicated situa situation in the Mideast, those are the problems that were on the, were, were on, uh, the president's desk. Right, so it's the uh, the war effort was going fine, but then the Soviets were were starting to poke a little and and push the boundaries. And I think it's the government of Poland is one of the issues. It's like they they weren't liberating Poland; they were they were putting installing their own puppet government there. And uh, I mean, basically, there was going to be this massive power vacuum in Europe. Who was going to fill it? It suddenly became clear that Soviets were going to come in from one side, and we were going to come in from the other side, and. We had opposing political beliefs. You know, we believed in a balance of power for reasons of justice, morality, humanity, uh, and, and national security. Soviets, they believed in an imbalance of power because of the only communist, major communist nation in the world at the time. They saw every other nation as a threat. So uh, th that was the sort of relationship that Truman was going to have to navigate as the war is ending, what was, you know, and it's really amazing to think about it. It's the first chapter in this long story of, of the Cold War that we're still living with. Right, right. And we're still talking about Russia these days. And, and this started with uh, Truman's first day. One of, one of the interesting parts of the book for me was the role of uh, Jimmy Burns. And Jimmy Burns kind of uh, called the assistant president sometimes during the war, the guy kind of running at least the the administration side of the war. He wasn't a general uh, for Franklin Roosevelt uh, while he was alive and a, poten a potential presidential, uh, I should say a potential vice presidential contender in that 1944 convention as well. He steps in. His role in visiting Truman on those critical days and then becoming Secretary of State you know, he's not a player that gets a lot of, you know, mentions, at least in the memory of, of Cold War events. But reading your book, I get the sense that his role is critical, that he has notes from the Yalta conference, and that uh, it really assists Truman greatly to have Burns there. Bruce, thank you for asking. This is a great question. Jimmy Burns, such a fascinating figure and a man who played an amazingly critical role uh, in history, and it's a role that sort of I feel like lost to people today, except for those who are really, you know, big buffs of World War II. Burns was supposed to be the vice president, and Burns should have been president. And everybody in Washington knew that because Burns was very vocal about it. He felt uh, at the Democratic National Convention 
He was planning on getting the vice presidential nod. He actually asked Harry Truman to make the nomination speech for him at the convention. And through through these machinations that, you know, that move along and suddenly Burns is out, he's stunned and Truman gets the job. Now, going it, you have to imagine two percent of Americans wanted Truman as their vice president in 1944 on the ticket. Two percent, I'm sorry, of Democratic voters. Burns was the major figure. He was the one who was supposed to get the job. Right. So when Burns shows up in Truman's office on the first day of Truman's presidency and sits down and tells him that there's this atomic bomb, Burns is sitting there. He's fuming because this president, that that office should have been his. Burns was a, had no kids. Politics was his life. He was extremely intelligent, very ambitious. And, you know, for all time that he, he was sure that he could do that job far better than Harry Truman could. So Truman puts him, uh, uh, nominates him as secretary of state. So when they go to Potsdam four months into the Truman administration in the summer of 1945, Burns becomes the most important foreign relations um, expert on Truman's team. And um, from there, there's one critical thing, one really critical decision that Burns makes. This is a little complicated, so I, I want to make it as uh, concise as possible and clear as possible. The decision to drop the atomic bomb, Churchill was for it. Truman was for it. The Secretary of War was for it. Uh, Eisenhower was against it, but Eisenhower w was not uh, on the you know the major team of presidential advisors at the time. Mm -hmm. Admiral Leahy would uh, the White House chief of staff would later come out and say it was the, it was a bad move, but at the time he was you know there's no record of him being vocal. So basically everybody is telling Tr Truman he should use all his major advisors, even Churchill. Go ahead and use this bomb. End the war. It will save lives. Now, the Americans were um, intercepting Japanese communications, and we knew that if we demanded unconditional surrender of Japan, Japan would think that we were going to enslave and execute their emperor, and they would say no. We knew that because we we intercepted their communications. We had their we knew what they were saying, their inner conversations, and they were saying if America demands unconditional surrender of us. We will fight this war to the end, no matter what it costs. Now, Truman had to uh, give an ultimatum to Japan before this bomb was dropped. Of course, the bomb was a secret. And of course, we didn't even know if it was going to go off. That's important. Um, Truman has to decide whether uh, there's going to be this term unconditional surrender in the ultimatum to Japan. A lot of people said a lot of his advisors, Stimson, Churchill, not necessary. Who cares about this emperor? It was Burns who was the who was the the biggest voice in Truman's ear saying we have to demand under conditional surrender. Otherwise, there will be a huge political backlash in the United States for that reason. Unconditional surrender remained in the ultimatum to Japan and Japan refused to surrender. And we used the bomb. Yeah, because I think there was some thought that if you kept even though he did end up keeping the emperor in place in some form in the end of the day. But if you allow, if you put that out there as an option beforehand and didn't insist on unconditional surrender, I think that not only were you know, people in, in the United States at the time very angry, obviously, with the empire of Japan in a way that's even hard to understand, even with all the movies, just, just bitterness that, of course, the American public and the fighting GIs and those who lost sons and daughters wanted unconditional surrender, but just a practical concern that if the emperor was still alive, maybe he might uh, be a focus of resistance for them. That's right. And another way to this is not this is really a poor comparison to make, but it's worth mentioning. People today can think of Osama bin Laden 
Osama bin Laden was, you know, in charge of the foe that put the, those airplanes into the Twin Towers on September 11th. Now, we wanted him dead, you know? Mm -hmm. And if you think about it, the Emperor Hirohito was the face of Japan at the time of Pearl Harbor, okay? And uh, there, yes, there, were, there probably would have been a political backlash in the United States. It's hard to say. I'm also intrigued in the in the book by the, the, the fast pace of working habits of Truman gets to work early. Obviously, you had a president before him with severe health conditions before he even took the office and which were uh, exacerbated by the by being president and his his general decline in health. But Truman is, you know, not yet moved into the White House and he's actually crossing the street by foot and people are noticing him going to work and and everybody's kind of impressed by how quickly, you know, he makes decisions he makes decisive decisions. They're fast, and people know what to do. I mean, would that be accurate? For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. I think so. And uh, it, it, all of the people surrounding him in the White House, the first thing they notice is, wow, you can walk into his office, present a problem. He will present you with a decision right away. The exact opposite strategy of FDR who would sort of waffle on everything and keep everybody off balance because that was a way, that's just the way he did things. And that's how he operated politically. Truman was the exact opposite. Right. A very, just a very, a very different uh, thing. And uh, people in the press notice it that, oh my God, this guy's giving us answers. I mean, that might be off the record, but he's giving us answers. When that comes to that decision about the bomb, of course, the, the most famous event that we would remember Truman for beyond everything else, maybe his reelection victory uh, after that, the decision to use the bomb. It's my impression reading the book, I'm not exactly, it's not exactly reading from it in this case, that um, perhaps we've, we've been thinking that, oh, Truman agonized over the decision of whether to drop the bomb or not. I'm not sure that he did. You mentioned in your book, it's in the McCullough book as well, is that the Second bomb that was dropped on Japan at Nagasaki required no decision from Truman whatsoever. That indicates to me 
that, uh, you know, of course he had to do green light. But once he did green light, this was in the hands of the military officials. I wonder if he really agonized at all. I think it, I, I mean, I'm not saying that he didn't have any bad feelings about what the, the victims and the like, but, but I don't think this was a long decision. I mean, that's at least my sense. What do you think about that? I'm going to go ahead and agree with you. Um, I think he knew that this was going to kill tens, not hundreds of thousands of people. I think the reason for doing it was very clear cut. And you can say it in a sentence. The purpose of the bomb was to save lives. Uh, Truman said in his diary, or actually in the letter to his wife, you know, think of all the boys that won't be killed. They were going to send in an invasion force. The military chiefs, chiefs were estimating casualties in the hundreds of thousands. And those were just Americans, not Japanese. Hundreds of thousands of American soldiers were going to uh, be injured or killed. So I don't think it was a difficult decision because the numbers were so clear cut. And he was very clear about that and his memoirs and stuff. One thing I want to point out, Bruce, if I could, just just as a way to contextualize it, this is really what what this book is about, because a lot of books have been written about Harry Truman. It's about this four month period of time. And it's extraordinary to think that all of this happened in such a short period of time. I'm just going to read just really quickly. Four months. There was the collapse of Nazi Germany, the founding of the United Nations, fire bombings of Japanese cities that killed many thousands of civilians. The liberation of Nazi death camps, the suicide of Adolf Hitler, the assassination of uh, Mussolini and the capture of arch Nazi war criminals, uh, the fall of Berlin, victory at Okinawa, the Potsdam Conference, uh, the first atomic explosion, the nuclear destruction of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the dawn of the Cold War and the beginning of the nuclear arms race. So when you think of the fact that all of that happened in the first four months of a presidency for a man who never expected to be a president and didn't know how to be one. The decision to drop the bomb, I think, was just part of a broader picture where everything and every decision felt momentous. Every decision could affect the lives of millions of people and decades to come. And it's really interesting uh, that seeing that in the context of the presidency in general and what the presidency is like and anyone who gets in that chair is subject to the possibility that there will be earth-shattering events. Now, at this time, you know, the war had started, so it was in place. But there were still these surprise events that can hit anybody in that chair. You know, and uh, it cuts two ways, because I think there's a, there's a good Bill Clinton quote, somebody who did really seek out the office, uh, that, uh, you know, other presidents got to say the, the Russians were coming, the Russians were coming, or that there was some enemy, and that he being a somewhat post-Cold War president didn't have that urgency that could unite the country. So there's kind of a good and bad in, on one hand, of course, all of this is being thrown at you. And for, I know for myself, I would shudder to, to have such a job like that. I'm just a podcaster, but you know, uh, for some, some folks, that's, that's, uh, exciting. It's, it's exhilarating. There are people who make like quick decisions like that and kind of like it. And I, I, you know, you take somebody like Clinton who almost would have preferred a little bit more urgency during, during his presidency. Um, he was a quick decision maker as we established. And, you know, the other side of that, because we kind of contrasted him to Roosevelt, who took more time, enjoyed and was interested more in the political consequences of things. Um, 
Henry Wallace, for instance, uh, now his uh, commerce uh, secretary, after having been having lost the vice presidency to him, uh, he makes the comment that you know, which which is often a criticism of this type of president or this type of leader in general, whether they be a president or a CEO of a company, the ones that make the really fast decisions and are and are really decisive. You know, Wallace kind of makes the criticism, oh. That's because he's just not thinking about each everything enough. You know, he's not putting enough thought process into it. And so so there is that uh, contrast because we could have every type of president be like this. And I know there's a good group of Americans who actually would like that, you know, to be all presidents, be kind of Truman-like. Say what you mean. Think quick. But it doesn't always work out. So... uh I, 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 it's a jumble of thoughts, but I wonder if you have any, have any commentary on that. Well, th- there's a lot of ways to answer that. One is let's take Wallace for starters. Wallace is such a fascinating character, and he's been revived recently because of Oliver Stone's documentary. Did you see it, Bruce? No, but I've, uh, I've, I've heard about uh, that and his, and his contention, you know, about uh, that, you know, Wallace could have been president and, and the like. Stone excoriates Truman and he says that Wallace would have been the guy. If Wallace had been president, everything would have been okay or something to that, which is just absurd. It's just absurd. But that's besides the point. Uh, what, what, you know, eventually what, what, we're going to end up talking about Trump and Truman, right? These are people who, who have very different styles of making decisions. And yes, uh, they did share one thing in common that they seem to make very important decisions very quickly. And this was something that uh, Truman was both, you know, praised for. And, uh, you know, boy, Len Lease is, is is the great example in the book where he says himself he made a massive deci- decision, a massive mistake. He signed a form to stop Len Lease supplies from going to Britain and Russia um, after the war in Europe ended, because technically at the time, the USSR and, you know, Britain to less le- to a lesser degree weren't really engaged in the Japanese war to the degree that we were. So we shouldn't be sending them things like food. And they, they were, these populations were starving and depending on American aid, and they were our allies. And Truman signed a form and ships full of bread and butter and weapons and all kinds of other supplies, trucks, and um, uh, were at sea on their way to London, on their way you know, to, to, to the Soviet Union, stopped and turned around because Truman had signed this order. Stalin was shocked to the bottom of his feet. So was Churchill. They were very not pleased with Truman at this critical moment because of the quick decision he made. But it really puts in perspective what it's like to, for, for a man to sit in the Oval you know, Office chair and make these decisions day in and day out. And uh, certainly, yes, uh, if we look at the, the current president, an accidental president to a degree, certainly uh, president Trump ran for president. Obviously, one would expect should have entered the process knowing full well, you know, was going to get started on January 20th and the like. But one does get the sense that it is a, an accidental presidency as well because the, the electoral college numbers and the polling had been so stacked against him and everything that went on in the campaign and splits in the party and the like. You know, his own statements and statements of the campaign staff to the contrary, it does seem it was somewhat of an accidental presidency. And he's also in there. We get the sense that there's some similarity with Trump and Truman in that way. They're not going to bring in a team of professors to consider every angle of the issue on, on each decision, at least in, in that respect. 
there's a, a possible similarity between Truman and Trump. Well, listen, when I started writing this book four years ago, or more than that, I could not imagine. I mean, I couldn't imagine the world today, and I couldn't imagine how much the subject matter would be relevant today. I mean, you think about it. And you know what? I made a little video about exactly this. It's up on my website at TrumanBook.com. Right on the uh, on the on the top page is a little video I made talking about exactly this. How relevant this material is today. Think about it. We have an accidental president today, without a doubt, in my opinion. Nobody expected this. A wave of anxiety ripples across the globe because people are concerned that this guy, this is the guy that has the chops to do the job. At this critical moment in world history, there's a sudden turn events in terms of our relationship with Moscow. Russia suddenly is looming as a dangerous threat to everything here in America, our very way of life. Then there's the potential for atomic warfare in the Far East. Um, now you have two presidents, Trump and Truman, who are called on very, very early in their administrations to make world shattering decisions. And everybody, all eyes are on the White House. It's, 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 that, it's I think it's for that reason why you're seeing Trump uh, Truman's name so much in the news today. Even Judge Roy Moore in his speech after winning the Republican primary what last week or the week before, mm. he quotes Truman. President Trump gets up in front of the U.N. General Assembly for the first time. He quotes Truman. It's fascinating. All this is happening. And everybody's talking about Trump's warning to North Korea and how that echoes Truman's statement after the Hiroshima bomb. Um, and you know what? The accidental pres president has gotten some press because, you know, it's coming out at this time. And I'm sure it'll get more because so many comparisons are being made to these two people. The setup is so similar. The relevance is so apparent. And yet these are two characters that emotionally and politically are as opposite as you can imagine. Oh, yes. Truman, uh, although uh, maybe stubborn and, and not afraid to make a, uh, uh, a harsh comment here or there that might offend uh, Yankee ears, uh, <laughs> was one that was uh, pretty calm as a, as a manager, pretty calm as a, as a person. Uh, politically, we're talking about a guy that pushed for... Uh, uh, to help labor unions and uh, for national health and insurance at an early time, he's the first. Um, he's the first recipient of Medicare, just as, as a symbol of uh, his his earlier fight for for healthcare for people. So politically, very different. But it is interesting to see uh, Truman is often the the GOP's favorite Democrat uh, president to uh, to to talk about often, maybe because of that style, that method. Uh, is lends itself more to to a businessman in the office than uh, than the uh, a professor or politician. I think you're right. I mean, mo emotionally. Plus, I think for many Americans today, uh, and this is something else we can talk about because it certainly wasn't true when Truman left office. But today, the name Truman seems to bring warmth and confidence to Americans. It seems to me. That's why all like Judge Roy Moore politically couldn't be more different than Truman. And so but Truman is the one that that Judge Roy Moore is quoting after winning this this um, this primary. So um, and a reminder that I'm talking to A.J. Bame, the author of The Accidental President, Harry S. Truman and the Four Months That Changed the World. The one question that I would have about that, we talked a little bit about Jimmy Burns coming in and helping. We talked a little bit about the various generals that were instructing him both on the progress of the war and on uh, the nuclear capacity of the United States. And I wonder about that. Do these accidental presidents 
is it really, should we be watching the president itself, like watching Truman and his personality, watching Trump and what he does personally, or is there a lot of help? Is it really about the supporting staff? Could a lot of different types of people get thrown into this moment in 1945 and also perform well because there's such good supporting staff? Um, like in the case of Truman, you had Burns. In the case of uh, the current president, you're hearing a lot about, oh, you know, Mathis is, is helping him out and his chief of staff and, and the like. Are, are the ones to watch, and as they change, the presidency is going to change. How much is the man, and how much is the supporting staff? I think in both cases, um, there's some people uh, there that are advising them that are very astute, and maybe some less so. Um, in both cases, I think you have to, when you're confronting the issue of atomic warfare, certainly Truman was, you know, he said it to his dying day, even on his deathbed. People would come to visit him and, you know, he would he, he would ra- he raised this subject of how controversial that decision to drop the atomic bomb was. It was his and it was his alone. And I think that he was very confident in the decision making because of the reasons why he made it. Again, he could he could uh, he could express this reason in one sentence. That bomb was meant to save lives. Did it? It probably did. This is very you know, this is up for debate. It sounds like it sounds like so. I mean, uh, uh, moderns we we like to look back at everything and uh, you know apply our own moral universe and, and also apply a perfect world where things are things are fine and we're not fighting the war anymore. And uh, but uh, obviously, uh, particularly the use of suicide planes, kamikazes, and the like, it was it was getting pretty ugly in the Pacific, and uh, we didn't we didn't want to. And then and then I suppose there's a little bit of. Uh, you know, wanting to show Joseph Stalin that we had this bomb. Very controversial there. Uh, mm. How much of the bomb was, you know, how much of the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bomb, how much of that was a political play against the Russians? Um, you know, you could very easily make that argument that we use that bomb just for politics at the, at the dawn of the Cold War. Um, I think, you know, I side with Truman. I think that he was honest in, in, in you know, his reasoning and that, this, this wasn't a difficult decision. It was meant to save lives. I don't think it didn't hurt in terms of our ability of dealing with Russia at the time, or at least that's what we thought. But it really was very specifically meant to save lives and end a war. So it's hard to argue with that. I mean, the fact that there was no surrender after the first one indicates where the, the mind of the Japanese leadership, even this ungodly weapon unleashed on them. And still, because it's unconditional, there is no surrender until the second. So it shows you what would have happened with a million man invasion, you know. So, so yeah, I find myself in the uh, to the to the extent I, I have any authority to, I find I find myself uh, agreeing with Truman's decision as well. In the book, I tried to be really clear about um, how the decision was made, and I, I try to be clear about who was influencing the president, so that people are going to come. And you know, a lot of people who, who have, think that you know that was. Uh, you know, that Truman should have been prosecuted as a war criminal are going to read the accidental president and they're going to walk away and still think that Truman should have been. And that's okay with me. Um, you know, one of the fascinating things about this, when you go, this is the most controversial decision ever made by a president. Let's face it. When you go to the Harry S. Truman Museum and Library in Independence, Missouri, there's a book, um, open where people who visit and lots of people visit that place. Can, and it asks you, what do you, was this a good decision? Right, yes or no, and tell us what you think. And the book is filled with 
every kind of opinion you can imagine. Americans still feel so strongly about this, and they should. Oh, absolutely. It's it's no doubt a, a point to be debated. Uh, one of the things that um, Americans seem to be of an opinion about by the tail end of his second term was that they didn't like Harry Truman very much. Uh, he leaves the presidency very unpopular, and of course it's a lot to do with Korea and things that, that are out of the scope of the book. But I do wonder about that a bit. Um, Truman had a very poor reputation as a president in the 50s, in the 60s, some of the 70s. Really with David McCullough's book, Truman, the change, there's a change that occurs. At least that's my my take of, of the uh, historiography on it. Uh, and we see Truman for this period and and like him as a president. But I do wonder, uh, I wonder about that. Uh, you know, part of being a president, a good president, is being liked by the constituents, being liked by the American electorate and... He didn't always succeed at that, particularly in the next term that he would be granted. So there's almost kind of like two Trumans as the one that we're talking about here and then him, you know, not really having much success passing things through Congress that he wanted and, and getting into Korea and being, being unpopular. Um, I wonder, uh, about, you know, what it was, it, it, I, what it was that made him so unpopular. Was it the gruffness? Was it the, the non-political businessman-like decisions starting to add up and and be a little unpopular, um, and does it kind of shine a light on things that while well, during this period he uh, making these kind of fast decisions and being that type of president was good, um, long term it 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 didn't help him. Well. This is a this is a fascinating point. And let me frame it this way. Let's just say when he leaves office beginning in 1953, Eisenhower comes in and Truman is. Yeah, he's he's basically loathed. High tax Harry. He had, uh, you know, the, the press hated him. The things that the people were saying about this president, you can't imagine. Today, as, as, as soon as let's see, 2015, a Boston Globe writer noted. Harry S. Truman is now considered one of our most successful presidents, rating the top 10 in every historical survey. Where does that come from? And people may also said this about Obama when he left. You know, some people made the comparison. Obama, a lot of people were very unhappy with him. A lot of people are unhappy with him now. What are people going to be saying 50 years from now? Now, Truman, what Truman said was it takes 50 years for people to know whether president's decisions were good. Interesting. He said that he also said the only way to make any this, you know, intelligent decision on the matter is to go and look at the president's papers, which I spent a hell of a lot of time doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. George W. Bush actually uh, had a quote, 20 years. And I, and I and I wonder if he wants to give himself a little more. It's like we're getting on that period. We're getting close. But he said, don't judge a president for 20 years. And I thought about it. I, I think I think the 50s closer because uh, you do. There, there is so much contemporary politics that enter in. I mean, Reagan was. um very popular when he left office poll-wise. But as the the next presidency started and 
the Bush presidency and then the recession and things like that, there started to be this look back and uh, maybe things weren't so good. And then he's back up again and back down. And, and uh, Clinton had the high popularity rating at the end of his office. But I wonder if historians will just find that, you know, really not that much got accomplished. Uh, Obama might be similar. There also might be some there's some partisan feeling that maybe he didn't do enough to get Clinton elected and we're, we're, or conversely, there are people who are just angry about what he did, you know, uh, allowed too many immigrants in and the like. It just depends on what side of things you're on. Do you, it, it is an interesting point, like you make that the, in 2015, people are saying Truman's the greatest president ever. Well, what right do they have to say it when people in 1953 didn't? It really, it really, do we owe something to those contemporary voices and was there some talent that he lacked? that uh that led to that you know is it maybe it's an open question let me say two things i can give you two answers uh it's a very difficult question and there's no right way to answer it which leads me to my answer um i think after many years people could look back in the truman presidency and realize that the world was in such a state of flux economically politically um that here was a president who was forced to make decision after decision after decision in which in numerous cases, there was no right decision. There were It was constantly a decision between two bad. Korea is a perfect example. The recognition of Israel is a perfect example. These were decisions that Truman knew were not going to be popular. He knew that if he didn't make these decisions, you know, uh, things were going to be worse. That was that was his feeling. And I think looking back, people who really read a lot about this understand that this guy had boy, did he have courage. He had courage to make these really difficult decisions in which there was no right decision. The other reason I think people have changed their view of, of, of Truman through time is that, let's face it, um, the way things have gone since 1945, you know, I end the book saying saying that, you know, Truman is the president of this moment. Japan surrenders. Never would America achieve such prestige again. You could kind of make the argument that it's sort of been all downhill ever since that moment. <laughs> And, and the, the, the economic prosperity that followed, people have such a, people of certain ages have such a fondness for the early 1950s, because let's face it, unless you were in the army and you were headed for Korea, if you were living here in America, it was a good time. It was, a, yes, it, it was, uh, it was a pretty guy. I mean, there's a little bit of David Halstam and a very little bit of the, the, the fifties that has a little darker tone, but, but certainly things were getting better, uh, growth, growth upward uh pointing upward and and all of that and i yeah it's, it was a it was a heady time and uh, we were the global leader and whether that ever could be possible again in that way uh you know with with all of so, so many of those nations devastated and 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 the like is is would would be interesting uh what what goes into a a book like this um you you start with the secondary books that have been written, I'm, I'm assuming, you know, you read, you read Macala. That's, that's, he's, he's somewhat like, you know, your, your book notwithstanding is somewhat like the Bible of Truman, right? And then you, do we, do we visit Independence, Missouri? We visit presidential libraries and, and the like. And well, I'll tell you, the first thing I did, yes, obviously the first thing I did was read the Macala biography. And when I, the book is dedicated to my father. And when I started, when I told my father what I wanted to do four some odd years ago, he said, you can't do that. You know, mm. McCullough's book is so important. You can't, nobody can ever write a book on Truman after McCullough. And I said, yes, you can. You can do it. Uh, and um, uh, I purposely did not read McCullough's book again until literally I finished the manuscript and there was no way for me to touch it again because I didn't want anyone ever to tell me 
that I had stolen anything out of that book because someone, you know, no matter how hard you work on a book and how different it is, and this book is very different from a call. It's a, you know, it's not a biography. It's a zoom in. And it's also about a time period as much as it is about a character. So um, uh, just last night, uh, I, the first 12 reviews are up on Amazon. The book comes out on October 24, but uh, galleys go out to hundreds of readers and Amazon gives them out so people can read pre-press copies. And just last night, someone said that the, they like this book as much as McCullough. And I literally cried. <laughs> I'm literally stopped. <laughs> That's high praise. And I very much enjoyed reading the book myself. And the book is The Accidental President, Harry S. Truman, and the Four Months That Changed the World. Well, there's a little bit of background on Truman, and that's important to know. I think the the good part of this book is that you get hit with like you, you, the amount of time that you're spending on that day one and what it's like to be president and 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 be in that chair and what it's like to be the country with with that president in that chair as well. Uh, anything that uh you know we didn't touch on that you really think's uh in important for um to know? No, I mean I, I this has been a wonderful conversation. You asked really astute questions and I I really appreciate it. The only other thing I can say just moving back to your last question. Mm-hmm. Extraordinary. I mean you asked what it's like to write a book of this it, the amount of time that goes into this and, uh, you know, uh, the amount of hours that one spends alone and the, the number of times, uh, you know, during the thick of this thing that I literally had to work with a blood pressure cuff on. I'm only 46 years old, you know, it's not easy. So I, I hope that people read the book and I hope that they like it. What else can I say? Well, AJ, I want to thank you for appearing on My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. Thank you very much, Bruce. Very much. Great. We want to thank A.J. Bain, the author of The Accidental President, Harry S. Truman, and The Four Months That Changed the World. Go out and get it. Hello all, Eric Rivenis with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers, and have a safe tomorrow.